as you pass There are signboards on the windows Saying, wait here, second class And to me, the whir and thunder Cluck of running gear Seems to be forever saying, saying Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here The drover, an ex-squatter, is away with sheep. His wife and children are left here alone. Four ragged, dried-up looking children are playing about the house. Suddenly, one of them yells, Snake, mother! Here's a snake! The gaunt, sun-brown bushwoman dashes from her kitchen, snatches her baby from the ground, holds it on her left hip, and reaches for a stick. Anne-Marie Hansen just shared an excerpt from Henry Lawson's short story, The Drover's Wife. I'm Professor Gregory Bryan, and together with Anne-Marie, in today's episode of the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast, we discuss this classic story. Before we begin, we again say thank you to John Schumann for kindly granting us permission to use musical excerpts from his Lawson album. We also thank David Manier, the executive producer of the album. Welcome, Dr. Brian. Welcome, Anne-Marie. It's nice to see you. I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk about this story with you today. And I'm thinking as a suitable entry point, it might be nice if you would tell our listeners about where this really fascinating story fits into Lawson's body of work. Yeah, well, uh, that's an interesting question. Some would say in terms of where it fits, it actually fits right at the top. In fact, I think a lot of people would say that. And, and that's from an individual perspective in terms of the individual story, but also from the point of view of Lawson's career, that just generally speaking, this period in the early 1890s was the high point of his career. And this and other works that he created around that same time, he was never able to, uh, to replicate in terms of their quality. So yeah, so I think that, that generally as a short answer um, it is true, but there's lots of really interesting things in terms of where it does fit because this was published often in, in different venues. So first off, I should say that it was first, it was originally published in the Bulletin and that was the 23rd of July 1892. Now, as well as these multiple publication sites, of course, being different uh, venues for Lawson's publication, there were different editors. So that first one, as, as you know, and as our listeners know, would have been edited by J.F. Archibald as the editor at the Bulletin. Now, it was then, it was published in Henry's first book, which we've spoken about before, was published by Louisa, his mother. So that short story is in prose and verse. So that was 1894. So it first appeared in book form just over, well, just under, actually, just under two and a half years later because that book came out in December of 1894. It was then also published two years later in While the Billy Boils. And, and that initially, the initial publication, the editor was George Robertson. But then he also then passed it on to Arthur Jose. Uh, who was a sub-editor at Angus and Robertson. So we've had Archibald, we've had Louisa casting an eye over it, George Robertson, Arthur Jose. The story was then, in 1901, collected in uh, the Bulletin 
It's called the Bulletin Storybook, and that was a collection of, I guess, what were considered by A.G. Stevens, who was the editor of that book, uh, to be the best of the Bulletin's uh, stories and poems. And then that same year, in 1901, it was also published in England in the book uh, the, the Country I Come From. And the editor there, or the publishing house, was William Blackwood and Sons, and, and uh, presumably Blackwood himself was involved in, in the editing. But I'm not certain about that. But so there's a whole bunch of different people who have been involved in this, and each time it was being republished in a different forum, Henry was also uh, working on refining it further. So it is interesting to consider, and Rod Roderick actually has done a very good job of, of uh, looking at the different versions and just pointing out even the minutest changes, maybe the uh, addition of one word or even the changing or addition of, of a punctuation mark and those sorts of things. So there's a whole bunch of different people who have been involved. And sometimes for the better and sometimes, frankly, not, not for the better at all. So, but that's an interesting thing in terms of where it sits in, in Lawson's body of work is that it sort of depends which version because these were well, five different publications over about a 10-year period. And further in response to that question, this gave birth to later works as well. So it, it uh, was sort of the initial stage upon which some episodes were set, which were then more fully developed later on in, in different stories. So for instance, there's a story that... Uh, Henry published in The Worker in 1895, so this that was like three, uh, almost three and a half years later. He published a story called Middleton's Peter, and that particular story focuses on Middleton. His wife is having a difficult childbirth, and the character who's called Middleton's Peter, I think just because they don't know, people don't know who this man is other than he's always been Middleton's helper. He, um, he actually goes off, well, somebody else first goes off to get a doctor, and the doctor won't come because he's drunk. Uh, Dr. Uh, Wilde, I think his name was. And so Peter eventually uh, hears that the doctor won't come, and so he grabs his revolver, and the doctor does come. So, you know, we have mention of that in The Drover's Wife, that uh, one of the uh, the drover's wife's children was born under those sorts of circumstances where the husband went to get a drunken doctor by force, I think is what it says in The Drover's Wife. So again, that, that idea was more fully developed in Middleton's Peter. The Drover's Wife contains a discussion of the fact that at one point the husband uh, bought for his wife a buggy, which later was sold, uh, but that, that idea is more fully developed in a story. It was actually one that Baz mentioned as one of his favourites, A Double Buggy at Lahis Creek. And that was published in 1901 in, in England, in, in Blackwood's magazine, actually. So that was, let's see, that's about nine years later he more fully developed that idea. So we have, this is sort of, just a stage from which he launches further more more detailed uh, descriptions of some of these events. And then there's also an element, just one last comment, uh, I know that I'm doing a lot of talking here, but just another element is that 
he reprises a character who has previously appeared. When he was at the Boomerang, which we have discussed before, I mentioned at that particular time that one of the stories that was published in the Boomerang was a story called Alligator Desolation. And then that story was republished in the book that Louisa published, Short Stories in Prose and Verse, but it had a, a new title. It was called We Called Him, Al uh, Al Him Ali for short, was what the title was. But anyway, in that particular story, it says, I had a dog at home, a big black dog with unpleasant eyes, and a chewing up apparatus that an alligator might have envied. Which is interesting because in The Drover's Wife, it refers to a choring up apparatus. And then he makes reference to an alligator, not using those exact same words, though. He actually says, uh, the dog's choring up apparatus greatly resembled that of the reptile he was named after. The same idea, just slightly different wording. And then also in Alligator Desolation, or we called him Ali for short, uh, it says about the dog, he had a most enterprising appetite and wasn't afraid of anything on the surface of this earth or under it as far as he could burrow. And in The Drover's Wife, it says he is afraid of nothing on the face of the earth or under it. So again, here we have something that he has included before this dog, although the dog in, uh, we called him Ali for short, has black eyes, whereas in uh, The Drover's Wife, it has yellow eyes. But he's using the same sorts of ideas to uh, I guess express or explain the uh, the nature of the dog and its fierceness and uh, fearlessness. So it's interesting that this, in in that respect, this is jumping off from another work, and then there's other works then that jump off from the Drover's Wife. So I think it's a great question, and that's a long-winded, uh, multifaceted answer, and I apologise for that. Well, you know, I just I find everything you're saying incredibly fascinating. So don't worry about that answer. It gives me lots to think about. One thing I'm thinking is that th this story was a seed for many future writings. And I'm wondering if we go backwards, does it work the same way? Were there any seeds of experience in Lawson's life that contributed to the creation of the story? Well, yeah, that's, that's well put. And I have no doubt that there's actually lots of uh, such seeds that he witnessed and experienced. I think that there's no doubt that there's episodes, well, in fact, there is no doubt that there's episodes here in this story that are a, an accurate reflection of his mother's experience that Henry would have uh, participated in or at least observed. For instance, there's, uh, you know, the drover's wife shoots a mad bullock, and, and Henry did say that that is something that uh, his mother did on the selection. So there's no doubt about that. But it's interesting, though, that Mary Cameron, so um, Henry's one-time love interest, she claimed that the story idea was actually hers. Now, Mary Cameron goes on to become Mary Gilmore and, and to, to be an, an esteemed writer herself. But so that's something that she maintained was that she it was her idea or her ideas that Henry then wrote down in this story. Because she claimed that uh, the drover was her father and that the little boy in the story, the one that promises not to go a droving, that that actually was his, uh, uh, sorry, that was Mary's brother. So that's an interesting thing. 
Another interesting thing is that, well, let me just go to explain that in 1916, there was a theatre director, Frank Beaumont Smith, and he put he put together a a a play, a theatrical production, which did very well in Sydney, and it was cobbled together from some of Henry's different stories. And so at one point, while that was being put together, this Frank Beaumont Smith had asked Henry about the real-life inspirations for his different characters. So in other words, who was, this per who was this character based upon and that sort of thing. And so Henry Lawson wrote a letter to Frank Beaumont Smith, and he actually said, he specified that the drover's wife was his auntie, his aunt Gertrude, who was um, Louise's sister, but six years younger. But again, there's no doubt that uh, some of the drover's wife's experiences are Louise's experiences. So we have some different uh, perspectives there. Mary Cameron claiming that it was her idea and her family's experiences, and then Henry specifically saying it was his auntie. And then there's no doubt, as, as Henry identifies at different times that some of the experiences were Louise's. So it is possibly true that he cobbled together different things, different ideas that uh, he either witnessed or heard about. It's also, I, I mean, I think that, that uh, I think that the most likely model and the most dominant model for the drover's wife is, was Henry's mother. Now, he wrote this in, in uh, 1892. That was before his mother published his first book. And there's no doubt that their relationship is not the same after that experience. And so when he wrote in 1916 that uh, the drover's wife was his auntie and not his mother, um, you know, it, it is possible that that was somewhat colored by Henry's changed feelings about his mother. Uh, so I don't know if that's the case, but uh, it is possible that that's somewhat of an explanation as to why he said that it was Aunt Gertrude. Of course, the simplest explanation is simply that it was. And, and that's almost certainly true, that it at least in part was. But I think there's no doubt that a big part was uh, Louisa Lawson's experiences on the selection. So again, another long-winded answer, um, but what I was going to jump into earlier was the fact that lots of the stories and poems that we have talked about really focus on a masculine experience, masculine perspective. We have, you know, stories about people like dro who are drovers and, and people who are swagmen and, and that sort of thing, uh, outback workers and shearers and such. So we've, we've talked quite a bit about those sorts of characters and those sorts of experiences. So what did you make of this particular story and this particular character where the focus is, of course, so much on a feminine protagonist or a female protagonist? What did you think of all that, Anne-Marie? Well, it was wonder wonderful to see this different perspective under the pen of Lawson. Because I think like he does with, for example, the Mitchell character, he creates within this really hard life, one that would absolutely ravage most of us, uh, a very complex 
strong, admirable, courageous female protagonist. And I just throughout, as the story unfolded, I was just constantly impressed by his ability to capture both the wife's strength, the hardship to combat the hardship of this life, and then also her commitment as a mother and her keen, I think he says keen, very keen sense of the ridiculous and her um, ability, her ingenuity. So I just thought within each of the flashbacks, so to speak, as the story is unfolded, you, you get to see the hard life, you know, that the, the drovers themselves would have lived, but then the life and the hardship that came along with it on the homestead but how this character could withstand it. And I'm just thinking even in the opening line that I read at the beginning of the episode, the gaunt sun-brown woman dashes from the kitchen, snatches her baby from the ground, holds it on her left lip and reaches for a stick. Even in that single sentence, which stands as its own paragraph, you get this juxtaposition of the gaunt, like this is a hard life and this woman is worn down by the burdens that it brings. But you get in the active verbs of dashes and snatches, right? Her her strength and her uh, wherewithal and her ability to think quick on her feet in order to not succumb to it. So it, I, I am full of admiration, both for this Drover's wife character and for Lawson's ability to construct such, I mean, perhaps it leans towards the romantic portrayal, but nonetheless, there is enough in there to create this incredibly round, flushed out and very human character. I agree entirely with everything that you've just said. You know, I think that one of the uh, points that you made that I think is especially interesting, you referred to the sense of the ridiculous and so that's interesting that, that Henry has inserted some of those so-called ridiculous uh, feelings or scenes as well. So because we do have this, uh, well, it's, it's a sad, somber, sobering, it's almost pathetic portrayal at, at different times. But then we also have humor, right? And and the woman, the drover's wife, sees that, like, for instance, when she when she, her fingers go through her handkerchief when she's crying, you know, and that, that again, is is sad and it adds further misery, but she can see the humour in it, the fact that she has this handkerchief that is so threadbare or even full of holes that her fingers pass through it. And she says, uh, if I'm, I think that I'm remembering correctly that, that particular scene, she says that she will, you know, sort of save it and, and share that story at another time. And that it will bring a laugh. So she is, uh, she's optimistic. She's uh, desirous for other times that where things might be better. And of course, that's entirely admirable. You mentioned the pathetic portrayal of this life. That was, I think, your phrasing. Yeah. And like Lawson does in his other stories and poetry, where he establishes the barrenness or the monotony of the, this land he he activates exactly that same emptiness yes. at the very very beginning of the story and like if you look at the second paragraph right. for example 
all of that negative diction, right? Bush with no horizon, no ranges in the distance, no undergrowth, nothing. Even the creek is waterless. And so you just, even with that, just with that negative diction, you just get this emptiness that this woman who it manages to preserve the sense of the ridiculous is able to survive in. Yeah, well, further to that, towards the end of that paragraph, it says 19 miles to the nearest sign of civilization. And yet, despite that distance, we have the drover's wife on Sundays dressing up in her finest and dressing up her children and going for some sort of a, you know, a walk. And that is, in some way, a manner in which she is holding on to that uh, that so-called civilization, despite its distance, right? She's she's somehow, I guess, extricating herself from her immediate surroundings, or she's uh, she's positioning herself in some other place uh, with with other things going on and other other standards, I guess. And so well, I think that that's interesting. Go ahead. Well, and I'm. Another example of that is further on in the story, She it says she has an eye on the corner, right? She's got her eye for the snake. But at the same time, uh, Lawson writes also her sewing basket and a copy of the young lady's journal. <laughs> yeah. right? And so you see that despite the hardships associated with this life, she's trying to preserve, I don't know what you want to call it, culture or civilization. She's She's doing her best to bring these two worlds together. Heaven help her, Henry wrote. Heaven help her. She takes a pleasure in the fashion plates. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and the challenges that the Bush woman faces, I made a note that they're, they're biblical in pr proportion, right? We've got a flood and fire and disease and people who are willing to take advantage. Well, you can even go um, back to the idea of the snake, right? Yes, and of course the snake. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's that's well put. I certainly have not thought of it in those terms, but uh, it's absolutely true that this is uh, biblical in its proportions. And wonderfully, she has a hero, a, a, another hero in the story alongside her, and that is, the, the dog alligator right. and you really see them working in tandem against these tragedies that inflict this world and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the inclusion of this dog character oh well the dog the dog like you or you you said it best right there's no no that cannot be put in a better way he is a hero alligator is a hero it is it's it's somewhat sad though if I can just find where Henry talks about just the um, the the certainty of, of his death, and I just see if I can find that. There's no right. ifs, buts, and maybes, but he is because he's a snake dog. He's going to die. Uh, but he will be bitten someday right. and die. Yeah, he Most hates snake snakes and has death. killed many. He hates snakes and has killed many, but he will be bitten someday and die. Most snake dogs in that way. So it is a statement of fact. He will be bitten someday and die. It's not that he, he might be or he, perhaps he will bear anything. And, of course, 
when we think of this bond that exists between alligator and the drover's wife and the sense of security that she derives from the dog's presence, I mean, that just further adds then to the sadness that uh, lies in wait down the track for the drover's wife. Because, I mean, you imagine in this situation, if she didn't have the company and the support of the uh, of alligator, I think that she would have felt a lot more vulnerable and a lot more hopeless. So, yeah, I mean, alligator's a, a fabulous character. I mentioned earlier, uh, in we called him... Uh, Ali for short, or Alligator Desolation, that particular story had reference to his chewing up apparatus, whereas here in The Drover's Wife it's changed to choring up apparatus. That's really interesting because I just think that uh, even though I don't know what choring means, it just is a better word choice. It just sounds it sounds better. It sounds more appropriate to what I can imagine this dog doing if he was indeed chewing on my leg. He, he would be choring up my leg, I think. So I'm not sure why, why he changed it in that way, but I just think that it is better. And I guess that's the reason why he changed it. Did you notice that at all, the choring up apparatus? Well, I love that. Just I don't. I too don't know that word, but I also you just can imagine the dog and his and his teeth, right? Because in his jaws, alligator's jaws come up again and again, and so yeah, I did. I don't know. I obviously didn't know about that change, but it is an interesting brings an interesting attention to the importance of alligator's jaws, yeah. right? As as his primary tool against the invaders, so to speak. Uh, the invader of the snake. I mean, even in the last paragraph, no, sorry, toward the end of the story, you have that section where Alligator, together with the drover's wife, take down the snake and Lawson writes, Alligator springs and his jaws come together with a snap. Right. And so you're, it's like you're, the, the, the description of Alligator's mouth is recalled, right, with these big teeth. And, whatever and like, that a, exact, like a steel trap. Exactly, yeah. and it is he snaps again. But one thing that I noticed in this paragraph is how Lawson had organized the tandem effort of alligator and the bushwoman. You get the alligator snapping with his with his mouth, and then you get thud thud comes the woman's club on the ground, and then alligator pulls again, thud thud. Right, you know is is the drover's wife's stick. Alligator gives another pull, and it continues, and so. Even in this paragraph where they defeat the snake, it is a complete teamwork effort. And I just thought that was a, a, a wonderful way to emphasize the Bushwoman's strength in, in taking down the snake, but also the important role that Alligator brings to the situation. And further burden that the drover's wife is going to eventually feel, given the certainty of Alligator's eventual death. And, you know, speaking of in that inevitability, while I was reading the story, and even in, in this story, it mentions how she used to, I forget the exact phrasing, dream of dream castles in the air. Right. And, and then, but now she's used to the loneliness of it. And or the only things that she can think of concern her because there's nothing else in this world to think of. And I was reminded of a song on the Lawson album based on the Bush Girl 
1901 by Henry Lawson, and how that song chronicles essentially the inevitable increased sadness of the Bush girl, right? Because it starts with fond heart that is ever more true, firm faith that grows firmer for watching in vain, she'll whip, wait by the slip rails for you. And then the song concludes with the same Bush girl, gray eyes that are sadder than sunset or rain, bruised heart that is ever more true, fond faith that is firmer, she waits by the slip rails for you. And so you just see this transformation, right? And you it's like the Bush girl, this poem, you could imagine is the precursor to the drover's wife. And in both this song and in the story, you see how the girl might have been, as you mentioned, inevitably like alligator, been taken over by the, the requirements of this life. Yeah, well, it, it, at one point Henry writes, but this bushwoman is used to the loneliness of it. As a girl wife, she hated it, but now mm -hmm. she would feel strange away from it. Mm -hmm. So there is this arc where you you see the transformation and what succumbs in this harsh life and then what rises rises out of it and her desire to, you know, what she loses as a result of this life and then what she's able to preserve. And I found the ending yeah. of the story basically provides hope and inevitability at the same time. And I'm just wondering what you think about the, the ending and it concludes with that conversation yeah. between the bushwoman and the son. Yeah. Well, you know, I've read, I don't know how many times I've read this story, but I certainly remember my grade seven school teacher reading it over whatever it might be, 40 years. I've heard and read this story many, many times. But you know, when I read this story this week, <laughs> te tears came to my eyes at the mm -hmm. ending. Yeah. So that's interesting that it is so powerful, despite the fact that I know exactly how it ends and what's going to be said and who's going to say it, it still brought tears to my eyes. So, I mean, that's brilliant writing. But I, I can't remember the question exactly, Anne-Marie, but I think it was, what do I make of it? Well, I mean, it is just brilliant. Yeah, so little Tommy. But isn't, I mean, isn't that, I mean, and, and we, we have sort of... Uh, you know, we talked about uh, Alligator and the, and the drover's wife and their combined efforts to bring down the snake. But, of course, Tommy is so keen to get in there as well. So we've sort of skipped over him. But, I mean, he's another, well, I guess to use your earlier term in describing the dog, he is he's at least a wannabe hero as well. He's certainly full of heart. And uh, we see here at the ending that he understands even in his childhood manner, he, he does understand how hard it is for his mother. And I, I'm, that, I think, is just a reflection of Henry. I think he knew how hard it was for Louisa on the selection. Well, I'm curious if you see any parallels between the inevitable end for Alligator and this Tommy statement where he says, Mother, I won't never go droving. Blarse me if I do. Is it is that to be taken straight or is part of what causes the pain when one reads this is the realization that Tommy likely will? Yeah, probably depends on the day that I read it. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, and, you know, again, that's brilliant writing. Henry does leave it open-ended and, and open to our interpretation. And, at least in my case, my interpretation varies depending on probably what's going on in my head and what's going on in my world at the time and all of those sorts of things. You know, in some instances it is positive and uh, it's good to think that the drover's wife will have her son to comfort and help her forever. But, uh, you know, on another day, well, we just think, well, you know what, a couple of years he's actually out the door. And I think that's such a, a wise comment that that Lawson leaves it open-ended in, in just the concluding phrase or sentence of the story. You get both. And I think it is worth reading this last line. He writes, and she hugs him to her worn out breast and kisses him. And they sit thus together while the sickly daylight breaks over the bush. And so the story follows this snake battle through the night. And typically in literature, right, sunlight, daybreak represents a freshness, a renewal, hope. And yet as the sun is is rising, which gives an impression of positivity, it's a sickly daylight. And she hugs him, perhaps believing that things will change. She's doing so to her worn out breast. And so in that concluding line, you get both the hope of day and the closeness of mother and son, but also the sickliness of day and her worn out breast together. And so I think as you very aptly pointed out, it leaves both ways forward. And I think that is a testament to Lawson's brilliance. One, I know that we're almost out of time, but this is a story I know that you've been looking forward to reading because it's uh, one that is frequently referred to even on our own podcast. Uh, Kari, when, she, when we spoke to her from Norway, she identified this as one of her favourites and so did John Schumann and so did Baz when he was on. So everybody identifies it uh, as a favourite. Uh, and how did you find it in terms, in, in terms of a comparison with other things we've read? Is it now one of your favourites? Did not disappoint you know, I think you mentioned to me earlier that sometimes you, when you've been told a story is so great that sometimes in the reading of it, it does not quite meet that expectation. This story, despite the previous praise that I've been made aware of, absolutely met it. I think it is brilliant and I'm so grateful to you for giving me the chance to read and think about it and then with this wonderful discussion, talk about it. So thank you very, very much. Dr. Brian. Well, thank you to Henry for uh, such a masterful story. No, I'm re very, very glad to hear that you enjoyed it as much as you did. So we hope also that our listeners have enjoyed our brief discussion of The Drover's Wife. We hope that you've enjoyed the episode, and, and if so, please do tell others about it and tell others about this podcast. Next week, we're going to talk about Henry Lawson's time in England in 1901-1902 so uh, we'll be reading some things that he wrote there and about his time there. And just to conclude thank you Dr. Brian and we encourage our listeners uh, to take a look at the Henry Lawson Memorial and Literary Society and just a reminder that in 2023 the society will celebrate a hundred years of existence. Thank you Dr. Brian. Thank you very much Anne-Marie. I remember, oh man, I remember 
The tracks that we followed are clear The jovial last nights of December The solemn first days of the year Long tramps through the clearings of the timber Short partings on platform and pier I remember, old oh man, I remember The tracks that we followed are clear 